Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for October 7th, 2021. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many people. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional and ancestral territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, we will start things off with a brief update on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta. Thank you everyone for joining us again today. I would like to bring Dr. Vipont into the conversation to provide our update on the current COVID-19 situation for Alberta. Thank you, Dr. Vipond. I'm uh, I'm pretty excited about our, our our group of panelists today. So I don't want to take up too much time. Let's go right into the slides. And here we go. So uh, again, another big drop in our cases. Last week, 1725. This week, 1265. That's a 26% drop. The seven-day average dropping 22% from 1645 to 1275. So both trending in the right direction. Next slide, please. And then we have our, our uh, percent positivity down to 8.07%. That's down from 809 um, a week ago. So a 2% drop was ex exactly what we want to see. That's really, uh, really good, good news for us. Next slide, please. Uh, now here's where things get a little messy. L look at that hospitalization curve. It is so incredibly flat. Um, our highest day was, uh, I believe 868 and we're at eight or maybe 878 at the peak. And now we're at 864 flat for Monday and Tuesday. You can always ignore yesterday's numbers because uh, um, they're they're not accurate. But uh, really, really flat right now for our inpatients. Next slide, please. I see you also flattening out. We're down by about 20 from the peak, which I believe was 267. Uh, and we're at 248 the last two days unchanged. Um, and a 6% drop from last week, though, um, from 264 to 248. Next slide, please. And you can see the flattening of those curves in, in the waves here. And you can also see how much higher these two curves are, uh, both the ICU and the inpatient curve, compared to previous waves. Even that monstrous third wave, we're dwarfing it. Next slide, please. Um, and uh, I always like to talk about the PEDS hospitalizations because we keep being told that they're uh, not a big deal. They are a big deal. We have um, four new admissions to the hospital, one um, under one year, so one one baby, and then three 10 to 19s, including one to the ICU, which is um, every parent's worst nightmare. Next slide, please. Um, here's the desk today, 26. Uh, nobody particularly young, which is good, but there were two very young people yesterday, uh, 20 to 29 and a 30 to 39. Um, next slide, please. 
And um, as you can see, everybody's uh, every age group is dropping for whatever reason. The 80 plus, uh, sorry, the 60 to 79 age is not dropping as fast as everything else, but they're dropping nicely. But still, look at how high those COVID cases, uh, daily COVID cases for the kids are. Next slide, please. And finally, we're seeing some movement in the rural areas. For a while, it looked like they were going to buck this curve. It was going to be a, an urban drop, but they are actually dropping across the, across the board. The left graph is the percent positivity, which is curling down for all regions. And then the, the right is the uh, daily cases per day by capita. And I think that's all my slides. Um, I just finished watching the presser. I just wanted to comment that the, the government continues to take zero responsibility for um, what's happening in our schools. It drives me crazy because we know that, you know, these 5 to 11s are, are both driving the transmission within those schools and the transmission in the community. Um, they continue to pretend it's not a big deal that they had no responsibility, even though all these kids who were unvaccinated went back to school with zero protections at the beginning of the year. It's true they put in masks, but there's still no masks for K to three, and there's still no mask mandate if you're sitting at your desk facing forward, which because this is an airborne transmitted disease is, you know, dangerous and isn't working. Um, the other thing I want to comment is that I heard Premier uh, Kenny say that, well, we know that this is being um, primarily being transmitted amongst the unvaxxed who are socializing indoors. Well, guess what? The kids are unvaxxed and they are integrating indoors every day in schools in large numbers, and they need better protection. I still think we need schools to close for a period of time so we can get those numbers down, so we can put in the adequate protections that are required, including good ventilation, filtration where ventilation is not possible, and really get an adequate mask mandate in place. Um, and we're still seeing um, inadequate uh, protection for these kids. I'll turn it over to Zayed for another breakdown of the numbers. Thanks. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Thank you very much for joining us again today. I am very happy to have you with us. A lot of you at home will recognize this wonderful contributor to the POP AB team who is also responsible for the balanced scorecard. Today, um, Zayed's going to be sharing some information with us about the unfortunate situation where we find ourselves requiring ICU level care in non-ICU wards. Thanks very much, Michelle. Thanks, Joe. Uh, yes, um, my presentation is going to be two main slides and two optional slides um, about the ICU level of care being provided in non-ICU wards in order to prevent squeezing that triage trigger. So uh, I've learned a lot about this from Miha Bakshi, who's an internal medicine doctor at, um, uh, at an Edmonton hospital. Um, who's been working with a number of teams to offload ICU by providing uh, almost completely ICU level care in internal medicine or family medicine wards. Um, and uh, yeah, I've learned a lot from her, um, from Paul Parks, uh, and I wanted to share um, some of what I've um, absorbed from them. So the next slide is uh, my trademark very busy uh, graph. So let's just talk a little bit about it. The vertical axis is the number of Albertans in ICU. So not just COVID-19 uh, patients, but patients from all causes, including 
surgical um, recovery, um, uh, heart attacks and strokes, etc. Um, the main purple blob down at the bottom is the same as the purple that you see on Alberta Health graphs. So I've got that little inset there. Um, so the, hopefully I match the colors well enough. Uh, it's the, the purple ICU part of Alberta Health graph is what I'm showing here on this graph. And I'm showing it to you in context of people in ICU from all causes. So above the purple is this gray um, area there. And that gray area is the surge ICU capacity. And the red line is that baseline ICU capacity of 173. So given that we've had a very bruising third wave and our healthcare workers are burned out um, and uh, are not being treated um, with respect by our government, we already have difficulty meeting that ICU capacity baseline of 173 at the level of quality that we would like to um, and at the level of um, uh, rest that our workers need, emotional and physical rest. So what's been happening is um, since um, about the 9th of September, just the COVID patients alone have exceeded the ICU baseline capacity. And uh, in early September, we started noticing uh, that there was a need to worry about triage. So that sort of became what um, more Albertans learned about. Um, and so the blue line that you see there above the purple is the total people in ICU from all causes. So that's COVID, um, car accidents, um, heart and stroke, surgical recovery. The black line above it is 90% of the surge capacity. So it's 90% of that gray area. And as you can see in early September, we passed the surge capacity trigger uh, for triage. Um, and we did so again in mid-September. And then in around the 24th or 25th of September, we got very close again. So it's really hard work, um, creativity, as well as just brute force hard work and commitment that the um, non-ICU wards, uh, like the one Dr. Bakshi works in, um, have been offloading ICU in order to still give doctors the chance to save lives um, without having to invoke triage. So um, I'm just gonna, you know, in the lower right, I've got that inset of the non-ICU orange and the ICU purple. Um, and I'm going to give you now a look at that. I'm going to show you this graph that we just looked at is inside this blue box here. So what I was showing you in more detail is now um, marked on the Alberta Health Standard Graph uh, that you look at when you look at um, severe outcomes on their statistics. So the latest numbers we got are ICU 248 and non-ICU 846. Um, and thankfully the total of ICU and non-ICU have plateaued for a little bit. Uh, fingers crossed because we've got a long weekend coming. Uh, we've had indoor full capacity hockey in both Calgary and Edmonton. Um, and it's not clear whether we're testing enough 
Um, the rural areas have much higher test positivity. The cities of Calgary and Edmonton have test positivity below 9%. So you'll sometimes get a shifting idea of test positivity or you know the upstream cases coming, whether let's say it's a weekend where maybe rural sites aren't being tested enough or whether just test volume is down. So I think we were down to 8,000 tests run earlier this week and then uh, and had 8,000 case, 800 cases, and then we went up to 16,000 tests and 1,600 cases. So I look more at test positivity to see what's coming upstream to the hospitals than I do in the number of cases. Uh, if you don't mind, especially uh, Joe, if you don't mind, I'm going to step into something that I uh, picked up when I was uh, working with Dr. Bakshi. Uh, she refers to an optiflow. And so I got these uh, two slides from the University of Iowa um, Healthcare Center. And the first one is, so generically it's called heated high flow oxygen therapy. And it's the highest flow of oxygen that you can get into your nose. Um, and this is the highest, closest that a non-ICU ward can get to a ventilator. So some of you might remember my tweets uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago when I learned from Dr. Bakshi about uh, the goals of care document and about the non-ICU awards able to offer the full goals of care, including R1, which is resuscitate me using every means possible. There aren't ventilators in non-ICU wards. Those are only in the ICU wards. But in the non-ICU wards, using those hard to, um, hard to find uh, respiratory techs um, or surgery therapists, uh, they use this OptiFlow system. Now, I had a little peek. Uh, so I'll just generally describe this uh, uh, thing that you see in the upper left. It looks kind of like a, those of you that use a CPAP machine, it's very much like a CPAP hose that then has little pillows that come into your nose. Um, and I'm covering over the picture of the OptiFlow because it's on my next slide. But I put on some information that the BBC has about breathing rates. And so normally at rest, we're breathing about six liters per minute. And when we're really pushing hard, we get up to 90 liters per minute. So if you look down below, um, there's the clinical outcomes, which I'll just kind of generally refer to. It's better that an MD speaks to you rather than a BSC. And then in the OptiFlow, uh, we've seen other people in our POP Alberta presentations talking about OptiFlow going to 30, 40, 50, 60 liters per minute. So you know, you can see how that compares to a resting rate of, let's say, someone in bed um, and someone pushing really hard. Um, and especially that um, uh, last POP Alberta, where the respiratory therapist from a rural area of Alberta explained what she does. Uh, this was very helpful for that. The last slide is a picture of the OptiFlow equipment. So OptiFlow um, and these other heated high-flow oxygen combine uh, sterile water and oxygen from the wall or from a canister and air from the environment. And they can control the O2 to air mix. They can control the temperature. They can control the humidity. And so from what I understand from the docs, and I don't want to get too far into their territory, is the lungs dry out, the lungs get brittle. So you use the OptiFlow to deliver as much flow as you can through the nose um, with a lot of humidity to protect the lungs and uh, keep them uh, in the non-ICU ward. Because in the ICU ward, 
we're well over capacity. Um, if you need to go beyond an optiflow into a ventilator, you know, there's capacity issues, there's staffing issues, uh, and we're, we just don't want to push up against triage. So I wanted to infringe a little bit on MD turf by showing you this optiflow uh, in addition to my stats to, uh, to give you an idea of what happens in the orange area up here and how it's protecting the purple area. Thank you so very much. Um, it is fantastic to get to have you with us again today. Um, I personally am an eager follower of your Twitter. Um, for those of you not on the Twitter universe, um, ideally these slides will appear on the POPAB website later today, as well as clips of this presentation and the briefing as a whole. Um, it is really important that all of us understand, particularly going into the long weekend, how severe those numbers really are and where the and how significant the crunch really still is. So as we talk today about measures that may still be needed um, because we can't continue to have so many people going into the system, um, it's really important to look at the differences between what generally is happening in a non-ICU situation and what is now happening in a non-ICU situation. So thank you so very much. I am very excited to welcome back Dr. Gasparovic um, to talk with us again today about why we really do need to stem the flow of patients into our system and how even though we have reached this fingers crossed bit of a plateau, we are nowhere near out of the woods. Thank you so very much for being back with us today, Dr. Gasparovic. Thank you very much, Michelle. Good, good afternoon, everybody. So I would like to talk about fire break, different measures and COVID spread dynamics and what are solutions for Alberta right now. Could I have? Yes. So the the important thing I would like to start is describing the definition of R0 because I will use it. So it's basic replication rate and it tells us, R0 tells us how many people on average one infected person will infect when there is no vaccination and no public health measures. So basically if it would be the life like it's 2018, then one person would infect three people with original variant that we have original strain that we had initially here. But now we have Delta strain and one person would infect on average five to eight people if we had no public health measures and no vaccinations. Then there is this other number, RT, so reproductive number, telling us what is our value, how many people on average one person infects under certain conditions of vaccination or public health measures. Uh, next slide. So here's the illustration of different RTs. When it's above one, so and starting from 100 cases, so when it's above, above one, uh, it's bad. That means that um, the outbreak is growing. So here the red line is R of 1.5. It's good when it's below one. That means that outbreak is dying, outbreak is dying out because each person infects less than one person. So, uh, below one is good, but something like 0.9 is not perfect because that means that to really stamp out the outbreak, 
we, from 100 cases, we will need to wait six months to stop the outbreak. So we want something that is 0.7 and below. And then with such R value, we can stamp out with 0.7, we can stamp out outbreaks starting from 100 cases in seven in two months, and in less than one month if we have R value of 0.5. And what is important is that R value of 0.9, we can almost reach it with the vaccines alone without any other measures. But then with Delta, we would need to have like 95%, 90, the vaccine that has 95% efficacy against onward trans, against overall transmission. And we don't know how effective the vaccine is exactly against transmission, but if it would be as effective, that would be great. And we would need the 90% of the whole total population fully vaccinated. Uh, we are not there yet. And then our R value would be just slightly below 0.9. It's in theory. But in practice, we've seen that we many times we reached in different jurisdictions are of 0.5, 0.7, 0.8. And it was in first wave, it was totally with original variant. It was without vaccinations. In the second wave, it was with little vaccinations and fire break. And in the third wave, we reached R value of 0.66 in Alberta, both with fire break and vaccinations. So basically what it shows is that public health fire break, whatever comes in a bundle in a fire break is more potent in slowing down the spread than vaccines alone. Um, okay, next slide. And this graph shows that, so the, the black line is uh, overall daily new cases in Alberta. The colorful lines are, it's broken by different regions in Alberta. So we see our first wave, second, third wave, and our Delta wave. So each time we had the shutdown, uh, so a strong fire break, it reduced the spread. Each time we had cases going down after the shutdown. And there is some criticism of shutdowns in the way that, okay, we had shutdowns, and now we have another way. Why, why is it happening? Why they didn't solve the problem totally? And that's because we always reopened before stopping community transmission, before stopping the spread, before eliminating, eliminating COVID locally. And then cases start. So we have the starter of cases. We make the conditions that favor the spread and the cases start growing. And on top of it, if we have variants, they, they are growing faster. But anyway, shutdowns and fire breaks always worked. Whenever they were implemented, we had decrease because we had very steep decrease in cases. And all our shutdowns till now included closing in-person schools. So we never had an effective shutdown without closing in-person schools. So next slide. Mm, and this graph shows two different strategies. So again, there are daily new cases uh, adjusted per population. Colorful lines show Atlantic Canada provinces and gray lines show um, living with COVID or mitigation strategy provinces. They used exactly the same tools as we did. So Atlantic provinces used exactly the same tools as we did in their shutdowns. The difference was that they kept them a little bit longer than us. So they didn't reopen until the, they stopped community transmission. Uh, and they also had control for travel. So they prevented 
importation of new cases and new outbreaks coming from new cases. And so basically you see just this small difference in, in strategy and the way of using the available tools translates in tremendous difference in effects. So basically they using the short shutdowns and keeping them till the community transmission is stopped gives much more freedom for people inside the bubble and means much less cases and much less hospitalizations and much less deaths. So anytime they had outbreaks from imported cases, they can also swiftly stamp it out. Next slide. Mm. And as we know, cases translate to deaths. And so this, those are deaths per capita adjusted for population in Atlantic Canada with elimination strategy versus uh, six provinces with mitigation or living with COVID strategy. So we see that the difference is tremendous. Like this, we have this huge gray mountains of deaths when their death rate was much, much, much smaller. Next slide. Um, so what can we do in Alberta right now? Uh, that's the most recent graph showing daily new cases over time. So on the left, we see our third wave. And we could see that with, with fire break that we had plus vaccinations, we really managed to, to bend it very sharply and had the sharpest and fastest decline we ever had in cases. It was like halving every six days or shorter. And the R value was 0.66. But the mistake we made, we reopened too early. So we had we not reopened in-person schools for five weeks, for five weeks that were left till hol summer holidays, and had we not reopened like at open for like best summer ever and open for summer and waited a little few weeks longer, then we could stop community transmission by July 22nd. But we didn't do it, so now we have the fourth wave with mostly driven by Delta variant. But if now we would initiate fire break, like today, uh, then we could get halving time of four to six days, which means that in 10 days we could reduce daily new cases to 300 cases uh, per day. And this is important because at 300 before, when, whenever we had like 300 daily new cases per day, then in two weeks from that time, it was such a relief for ICUs, for hospitals, that, that we could have again the scheduled um, uh, operations and surgeries. Uh, but if we would keep fire break longer for six weeks or nine, between six and nine weeks, we could stop all the community transmission. And it's it's really important because if we don't have community transmission and just need to control for imported cases, so have quarantine together with rapid tests, together with vaccine passports to prevent new outbreaks, we can really have normal life back and we can prevent the fifth wave. So we could have normal Christmas without another fire breaks and shutdowns and so on. And Another thing I wanted to say here is like, please notice that every time always our case wave goes up to around 2000 daily new cases and then government does something. And that's because our strategy is bound, hinges on capacity of ICU beds. And 
so basically we tolerate the government tolerates cases until it overwhelms capacity and so we never go much above 2000 daily new cases i compared our numbers to austrian numbers and austria has twice more icu beds per capita than we have also in second wave they allowed cases grow twice higher than our cases and they had twice more death per capita that than we have so basically what it shows that if it hangs the more beds we have if we have mitigation strategy that hinges on beds then the more beds we have available the more government allows the spread to continue and the more government allows deaths to happen so basically if somebody screams for let's have now 1000 icu beds it's de facto with this strategy it's de facto screaming for allowing virus to kill more people and um, yeah that's not what is happening in um, in nova scotia for example so people who live in nova scotia are not dying as much as people who live here and okay but anyway we could we could really reduce the cases very quickly and in six weeks stop community transmission if we also control the travel and the question is also if we can can we just do nothing and except the vaccination can we stop it with vaccination alone so the answer is not soon uh can i have next slide so here this graph shows situation so vaccines slow down the spread they are and of course protect life pro protect the health um and if we would have so knowing the deltas deltas are value it's very transmissible so it's around six or higher if we would have 10 new cases imported so let's say in alberta we stopped all the spread and we have two new 10 new cases brought from abroad uh if nobody would be vaccinated we would have like super fast outbreak that is the red line with vaccinate if we have and assuming we don't have that we wouldn't have any public health measures at, in place if we would have 80 percent efficient vaccine uh, and 80 percent of total population vaccinated then we would have this brown line so the spread would be slower and would give us much more time to react and to implement public health measures and to stop such an outbreak if we would have a very effective vaccine like 90 percent efficient against overall transmission and if we would have 90 percent of total population vaccinated so we are not there yet because kids are not eligible so now it's not possible to vaccinate 90 percent because less than 90 percent of people are eligible but let's say that we would be able to do it then we would have this blue line so cases would still grow up but but much slower so if we would add public health measures on top we could stamp it out if we would have nine super efficient vaccine so probably with boosters maybe maybe with nasal vaccine that would um, give sterilizing immunity and 90 percent total population vaccinated then we could reach herd immunity. but then and only then we could reach the herd immunity so we wouldn't need to do anything extra and the outbreak would just die out by itself but we are we are not there yet so we need public health measures on top of vaccines and the more vaccines we have the less public health measures we need to uh, to achieve the same uh the same result next slide so th this is this this is showing the scenario of 
public health measures put on top of this hypothetical outbreak uh, that would come from 10 cases with different vaccination scenarios. So if we wouldn't have, no, if nobody would be vaccinated, then even with strong public health measures, we would have still this red fast spread. But with vaccines, we could stop in like we could stop such outbreak with 80% efficient vaccine and 80% of population fully vaccinated and adding strong measures on top of it in less than two weeks we could stop we could stop such a hypothetical outbreak so it's sort of like showing what our future could look like had we adopted elimination strategy and use vaccine as pro as an element in protection against importations thank you Thank you so very much. Um, and I am very excited to get to keep you up on the screen. I'm going to bring in our other panelists as well. And I must admit that I am reintroducing two inspiring minds that, as well as Dr. Gasparovich, um, do have me fangirling a little bit. Um, it is so delightful to get to have the three of you in this conversation for the remaining time that we have today. Um, I'm really, I, when I see the three of you, I feel slightly optimistic about the future that could be for this province, even though on a daily basis, I don't feel that optimism. So thank you so very much. Um, if I could have the two of you reintroduce yourselves to folks at home, that would be fantastic. I'll go first. Thank you very much, Michelle. So I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, and I am a specialist in general internal medicine in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I have been active with a number of colleagues across specialties, specialties uh, here in the province working um, to continue to do COVID-related advocacy and raise awareness with the public. Hi, I'm Lisa Barrett. I'm an infectious disease doctor and researcher in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Dalhousie University. And uh, I've been doing COVID stuff now for a long time, uh, both on the clinical front and on the research front, and certainly a lot of work and I guess somewhat advocacy around some of our public health measures over the last uh, 18, 19 months. So thanks for having me here. Thank you both again for joining us. Um, our first question from folks at home is, so I guess Dr. Gasparovitz from the inside and Dr. Barrett and Dr. Horton from the inside that is outside of our provincial bubble. What do you, what added measures do you think Alberta is missing? We've been using the term fire break a lot, um, but we all know Alberta's never had a true lockdown. And I don't know that a true across the ocean style lockdown would ever necessarily work here. But what are some things that we could be advocating for putting into that fire break to find ourselves in a position where COVID zero or an elimination strategy might not be a passing fancy, might be something that could be a reality? I guess I, I start from the inside. Uh, so for the moment now, <clears throat> closing in-person schools would be would be essential because we have such a such a high 
transmission. So of course, schools should be closed last and open first, but at the moment we definitely uh, should do it and it would reduce the spread quite dramatically. And strong financial support for everybody that would, because with financial support and structural support, all the measures that are added are more survivable. Like people can can do them successfully if they have if they have money to survive two weeks or three weeks or four weeks of of shutdown. You know, to that I would just add: here we are in Manitoba, and we were. Uh, the center of attention for very negative reasons in waves two and three. Uh, in particular, wave three was an absolute unmitigated disaster here until very late in the course, very reminiscent of what is happening in Alberta now. And I think what's so poignant comparing the two provinces and it's answering the question in an indirect way, of course, because by the time you get to the situation that Alberta is in, only the most aggressive measures will really be impactful at quickly beginning to blunt the situation. But if you look back to this summer where our paths diverged for once, um, you know, around August 7th, there was a decision made in Manitoba. There were vaccine targets that were set. And then that first week in August, an announcement was made, we're going to be dropping the mask mandates. There's not definitively going to be masking in schools. Uh, many of us were stunned by this. It seemed like inviting uh, yet another catastrophic course. And then a few weeks later, different decisions were made, likely partly uh, due to projections, but perhaps also due to alterations in the political landscape. I'm only speculating there. But a few weeks later, the mask mandate was reintroduced. So our children went back to school fully masked. We have had requirements that a person must show proof of vaccination going into um, many of the settings that uh, uh, that are known to be associated with COVID spread. And we are not doing too badly. Now, uh, the caveat is we are still on track for our uh, severe projections right now um, in terms of what things are going to be like in December if things continue to spread as they have been. Like Alberta, um, there are some areas of the province that where the vaccination rates are really low. Right now, they are driving a lot of the um, transmission. And again, as with everywhere, the majority of our daily cases are still in those who are not uh, have not yet been vaccinated. But really, there's a, a just a tremendous message there looking at the difference. Uh, we never let go of all our measures. And even when a decision was made that put us on a path of a quick collision course, it was retracted. We have seen a change in the overall tone in terms of uh, both government and then some of the uh, directives that have been followed, and we're reaping the benefits of it. We're, we're still not great, and our capacity is still uh, going to be running into trouble, but it is a more manageable situation, and it may be further mitigated once uh, vaccination becomes available for the 5 to 11 um, age group as well. And I think I'll, I think I agree with everything that's been said. And the other couple of things, um, and I try and keep my examples from within Canada because everywhere else is just a little, a little bit more different in terms of hospital systems and virus and, and amounts of public health measures. But 
the other piece, and I, I thought of this earlier, is that the earlier, not only do you implement everything as a bundle, which I love that word, the bundle effect is, is, is potent to do multiple measures quickly. It's the quickly part too, um, wherever you implement. But uh, I do think the quicker, the better and, and bundled together contemporaneously together is really important to get synergy around the impact from a virus perspective. Um, and the other piece that I would add to this is more of a human behavior and engagement part. Um, and successful bits in Canada have involved, um, maybe it's advocacy. I, I don't know if I love that word all the time, but it's also engaging people in the response and making them uh, a part of it. And not just by going out and, and you know, doing the things they need to do, but also making them a part of the response. And I, I honestly think that part of the success in Nova Scotia, our public health folks have been very much attuned to, even if there was a political announcement, for example, we were going to phase five on October 4th with reopening. And clearly the epi, the vaccine rate met that target. The epi was not there and masks stayed. You know, that, so that was there. Public health has been quite good. But we've also engaged people over time. Uh, it just happened to be around testing. I think it could have been around almost anything um, to help make test kits, to help deliver tests to people, to help get testing out to folks. And I can't underestimate the impact people have found that being a part of the pandemic response as opposed to being told to do things has had for a large part of our population. Um, so I, I think that's another thing that's harder to put a number on. Although in my next life, I wanna come back as a math modeler, just saying, I wish I had those skills. <laughs> um, but the qualitative human behavior and engagement part shouldn't be underestimated, I think, as we go forward. And if we forget about that for wave four and PS, probably the next bit until we get through one season of natural exposures plus vaccinated under 12s, um, we're going to miss some really great opportunities to really steer away. We're all still on track for those severe high levels in December in every province, even in Nova Scotia. And if we don't get more community engagement, more belief that this belongs to each person, regardless of policy, I think we'll miss a golden opportunity there as well. And so formalized policy that engages people to lead, I think, is something that everyone thinks is impossible and it's not, and we should expect it. I was hearing a lot um, of that, Dr. Barrett, through the lens of community-led versus personal responsibility. Um, we've spent a lot of time in Alberta being, I think for a lot of folks who have taken a lot of the public health measures very seriously, feeling very shamed as opposed to empowered. Um, you do the right thing and twice a week you still get a lecture that may or may not be directed at you, but it often feels that way as opposed to be empowered and provided with tools to help your community stay safe. And I was hearing that that you feel has been a really solid um, piece of encouragement and metric in your community for wanting your community to thrive beyond just, you know, be responsible. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, it's, it's a hard thing to prove. We're trying to find uh, some ways of, of, of documenting that a little more. But 
uh, certainly, and that's in addition to all the amazing things that were going on within public health, but it's hard to feel you own something if you don't own it. One of the questions that we just received from folks at home, and I think I will start this one with you, Dr. Barrett, and if Dr. Horton or Dr. Gasparovitz, you want to add anything afterwards. Um, are we aware, at least in Alberta, as well as I guess globally, why we are seeing a higher death rate with Delta? Uh, so the why of that is not exactly clear from that, you know, molecular level. Uh, there is some thought that this particular variant itself, when we study it in a test tube or in some animal models, there's little bits and pieces of data coming out that say that it gets onto and into cells very quickly in the lungs and the lower respiratory tract, and it seems to zip down there pretty quickly. Um, but the exact mechanism is not quite clear. I do think what is clear right now in all of our provinces and, and across, around the world is that the rates of severe disease are higher. Uh, and I don't think that's a question anymore. For a long time, we said, it looks like that's the case. Um, I would say that's very firmly the case. And uh, vaccines are exceptional at reducing that risk of getting hospitalized or very sick. But clearly, they don't prevent it altogether. And some of those breakthrough infections do lead to hospitalization in a way that also suggests that. So I'm not saying that vaccines don't work. I'm not saying that vaccines are not um, the key core part of what we do. But I do think we should be cognizant and mindful that although they're still very effective for Delta, we should still respect it a great deal and understand that even in mild infections, we may not know all of the long-term side effects, even of mild infections. So be mindful of that. We're still learning about this disease. Uh, and we really, that's one of the reasons um, I was so uh, happy to hear you say, don't increase the ICU beds to increase your capacity before you trigger. Um, it, we still don't know what the impact of even mild to moderate disease is with, with COVID-19 entirely. Let's respect the fact we don't know all those details yet and keep cases as low as humanly possible without having to do a full-on lockdown, except in situations where you've lost uh, control. Dr. Horton, Dr. Gasparovitz, anything you would like to add? No, I think uh, Dr. Barrett did an excellent job of... Um, taking that apart. And certainly the one thing I found myself thinking about with uh, her latter comment is just so frequently how the lack of humility with which we are approaching what we cannot know about the long-term effects of Delta for me has been one of, or, or pardon me, just of COVID in general, but um, who knows again with the different variants, whether that is altered, but it's, uh, it just has continued to amaze me, you know, that a disease that we have only had just is in its infancy in terms of what our clinical experience is and our ability to say how people 10, 20, 30 years from now 10, 20, 30 months from now may be affected and what the sequelae have been. We've on so many fronts been plunging into this with the idea that, well, it's it's probably fine. And, you know, there aren't many places in medicine uh, where you find good doctors who operate under the assumption that um, things that are new to us are probably fine. So just just that really sticks out to me as something else that we have to continue to communicate to the public is we cannot assume 
um, that those who have even mild infections will not necessarily face consequences down the road, even if it's just a small percentage of them, the numbers overall are so large that that has the capacity to become a, a massive issue and may well be what we are going to see in the years ahead. Which is something that brings me back to Dr. Gasparovic's um, presentation around the need for a fire break and the need for particularly extra mitigation or closure in our K to six schools. We still don't have masking mandates in every single jurisdiction for K to threes. And I was listening to the premier today speak during the press conference and someone specifically asked him about a fire break and about school closures. And he reiterated that the school closures in the spring were due to lack of teachers, which left entirely blank the desire to protect our tiny humans. And it's one of the reasons why I was exceptionally interested in having this conversation with the three of you is we do have this huge percentage of our population that is unprotected. We have vaccines that they are not eligible for yet. Our province isn't consistently masking them or tracing them or fully half the time I wonder about testing them. Um, and... Yeah, I know you have no answers, but I constantly wonder why this is okay. Um, folks at home are also wondering about the waning immunity component combined with, if we don't go for an elimination strategy, when does the fifth wave appear? Well, I think then probably on December. But I didn't do the model for that yet, so <clears throat> so I don't know. But like waning immunity, so I know that it's not possible with the type of vaccines we have now and amount of population vaccinated. It's not possible to stop the spread with vaccines alone. Just with such transmissible variant like Delta is, it will still continue to spread. We need public health measures together with it. And especially that this waning immunity is it's really bad. Like we had really bad informations coming from from Israel about how fast it it, it wanes. But we we can play with it if we have public health measures and make vaccination smart, like add boosters to people most in danger from from COVID consequences, but also giving boosters to people to healthcare workers who were vaccinated half a year ago or five months ago as a first line of giving boosters to, to essential workers because they are they are transmitting more. They are more affected by, more exposed to, to the virus. So if we would do the smart vaccinations plus public health measures, we could prevent fifth wave. But again, okay, so I think it's this respect to the virus and knowing the limits of our tools and using them smartly. Does anyone else have any thoughts that they would like to add to that relating to the, the fifth wave? I, unfortunately, I think there is a new level of concern about that in the province, especially after our health minister mentioned on Tuesday, increasing ICU capacity to deal with 
the next wave. And given that we're already in a place where there are almost 1,100 of our citizens in the hospital and where we are losing in Alberta in an hour, a lot of folks, I think, understandably are not okay with these imaginary acceptable loss numbers that seem to be hidden from us and pushed forward without what feels like to a lot of people, any humanity, um, just full of hubris. I'll, I'll add a little bit maybe of, of hopefulness around this. So, so as an infectious disease physician and, and somebody who studies viruses and immunity, that's kind of my, my thing. Um, you know, I don't think this is going away. I do think at some point we're going to get to the point of living with COVID instead of what I consider at the moment safer COVID living. Subtle but different. I hope if we put all of our tools into the toolbox then whip them all out um, at the right time as a big bundle, um, you know, we can have a wavelet coming up. And, and, and that can be smaller if we do use these tools. However, until we get to that point, um, you know, public health measures, not necessarily, you know, after you guys get, get this controlled in Ontario, coming into the next bit, we can have a wavelet um, if we keep basic, easy things in mind, like the fact that there's a vulnerable population that's still unvaccinated and not exposed, and you keep the mask, you keep lots of testing to keep virus low in the community, and you keep some public health measures around the biggest indoor gatherings and unmasked activity that, <laughs> that are so important. If we do that with vaccines, I think we could have a wavelet. I'm not, I, I haven't seen any models for that, but I do think we can do that. And then we will eventually get to a point where there's been another season of exposure for folks. We get to a point where most people in the population have some form of protection, whether that's been through vaccine or not. And just this other piece about the waning immunity. I want to be very careful about that because the vaccines, so that's a test tube study that showed that antibody levels and T cell levels do go down after a certain period of time. But interestingly, and not unlike other vaccines, the real world protection so far in the context of minimal and moderate public health measures is maintained against hospitalization and death. So I, I would like to be very careful with those data. Um, not everybody needs a booster at six months and many people will have protection. So be careful, I think, as we go forward and feel comfortable and confident about your vaccines. Just don't turn them into a magic wand when we think about it and assume that you can't get infected at all because there are more breakthrough infections, which is why the masking and testing are going to keep on top of our toolbox with the vaccines. So that's a long answer, but I hope that's a little bit hopeful. And I hope it says that we have a path forward as well after we deal with this lack of understanding uh, to me of immunology and, and uh, human behavior and virus that we saw with the fourth wave in some places. You're more generous than I, as I don't know that I feel any more like it is a lack of understanding. Um, I, I personally have had too many days lately where I feel like it is some sort of risk benefit analysis that I cannot see what is being put into each column. So, but I do appreciate the optimism um, around the potentials of eventually getting to a place where we can 
not have to have these conversations twice a week. Um, in terms of sort of as a final question relating to some of that from some of our folks at home. So say that by some deep insight, Alberta does decide that it is more beneficial to move towards an elimination strategy. And we do begin to enter that fifth wave post, you know, driving those cases down, or we do begin to see that little bit of a wavelet. What needs to be in the bundle? From day one, as soon as we start to, if we get through this and we start to see community transmission happening as citizens of this globe, what can we say we need in that bundle? Yeah, so we need airborne protection, uh, protection against airborne transmission, definitely. So as best mask, as, as good mask as possible, so N95 and higher, uh, air filtration, ventilation, uh, and education. So that people know how virus is transmitted and they know how to protect themselves against it. So that's one element of the bundle. Then as soon as we see the wavelet coming, like limit contacts, like, whoever can go online goes online and to stamp it out as quickly as possible. So also this quick, quick, quick action would be important. Dr. Horton, Dr. Barrett. Just to echo um, what was said, you know, I mean, I think one of the lowest pieces of hanging fruit um, that has in in our far western provinces has still not yet been acted as masking on young kids masking in schools and obviously um mandatory masking everywhere but you know you just ask yourself really are we um so so incapable of tolerating um something that is a, a little bit um you know we we perceive as inconvenient for kids i have young kids too and they have quickly adapted to this and understood that this is not forever but it's going to be for a while and it's part of living in a community and caring for other people and you know ventilation um in schools and workplaces you know to me is another one of those things there's the the controversy of course has been there's been some dragging of feet and acknowledging um the 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 fact that COVID is airborne and everything that goes along with it in terms of the work that we then have to do in our schools and workplaces and other environments to bring them um up to standards where um the spread of COVID is going to be reduced by safe ventilation. But there are some things we can do that are not, you know, they don't um, have the same uh, controversial tones for the population as vaccine, for example. And again, when we think of that bundle, uh, going through the things that everybody can comply with, um, it's pretty hard to imagine people protesting against airflow upgrades in schools and hospitals and things like that. So, you know, optimizing every one of those things that is not uh, going to necessarily be the focus of so much controversy. We get a little bit of a crude benefit out of every single one of them. So I would also say, especially in provinces where um, there are a lot of ideological splits, it's probably even more important to be optimizing um, those things as, as part of um, getting the equation into a, a balance that is helpful to the population. And I, this is, I know we're probably close to out of time, but I, um, I, you know, 
let's all reset the table here until everybody has the opportunity to get vaccinated. And we've been through a season of exposure. I call it the season of exposure. So you have almost everyone in the world through one mechanism or another exposed once to this. Stop pretending we're not going to do this stuff because bad news, once you've already started a wave, you're behind. And Every SARS-CoV-2 virus out there applauds every time we take a walk back with whatever we're doing. And so I think we need to reset that table that until next spring, a few basic things are going to have to stay in place. And that includes ventilation. It's going to take a while, right? That ain't happening overnight. But masks and keeping a reasonable size social network, not none, but a reasonable size, keeping people uh, at a little bit of distance when they can and keeping testing low. So you go loco or low COVID and you know when it's getting higher is huge. Uh, some people have gone wastewater, but you need some mechanism to know you're truly low COVID other than hospitalizations. And it ain't going anywhere. And if you keep trying to do that, it's going to keep coming back. And that's where I have a great deal of challenge with this, because this is now a preventable illness and disease in people. And every case is a human. So there's really not a whole lot of I, I say it with a smile, but I really have no tolerance for um, this changing. So I think also setting that table, if we can move that nationally, that's a big part of my days is trying to convince people that until at least next spring. Why do we have this conversation every nine weeks? Thank you all so very much for joining us today. Um, and thank you to everyone who is joining us at home and to follow up from last Tuesday, everyone who's been spreading the word about popab.ca to engage with us and share some evidence-based content from our community of experts. Um, a reminder that with municipal elections quickly approaching, um, your vote counts. Um, and please visit popab.ca to see our school trustee platform. Ask your local candidates if they'll support our vision for safe schools. And then we'll publish a list of all of the school trustee candidates before election day that sign up with that platform to make those tiny humans next year and into the spring much safer than it has been so far during this first six weeks of fall. Um, and also on the popab.ca website, you will find information about the Firebreak AB petition, a tangible action um, that really does feel exceptionally important today. I'm definitely going to take the, as soon as the wave starts, we've let it go too far. And I really like that image of setting the table, getting to a place where we accept that masking, that physical distancing, that increase in vaccinations, that limiting our high-risk activities and large gatherings need to stay with us post hopefully driving down this wave as I knock on something would like um, until we are in a safer place. That way we don't have to keep going through these exceptionally ridiculous highs and lows that feel like constantly shouting into a void. Um, as we say goodbye for today and get ready to move into the long weekend, remember the current crisis in our healthcare system is not sustainable. And this weekend could really increase the pressure on our fragile system. So take it slow, find joy and meaningful connection in 
our expansive natural environment, um, limit those high risk activities, not just the COVID ones. And remember, and I guess remind your humans and yourself that individually we can make a difference, but collectively the differences we make can be truly magnificent. We'll be back on Tuesday. Stay safe, Alberta. As always, remember, COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask you have access to. And vaccines really do save lives. 